A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, as we come now uh, to your word, we ask that you will speak. Uh, or maybe better, we ask that you will help us to hear rightly. And Father, I pray that um, just as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found um, in a remarkable way 
they were not alone in the midst of the flames. Will you grant us to know that we're not alone now? Will you grant us uh, to uh, be attentive and, um, and to be able to recognize your presence with us now? I know that that is just, it may sound like such a strange thing to pray, and yet um, we're bold about it. We ask that you would make yourself clear And will you strengthen us uh, for the difficulties and the trials and the challenges we will face? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody, please uh, take a seat. Uh, And it's helpful if you turn back to page 8 in your service sheets. Um, We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. And um, this is our second time looking at this particular reading. Um, Last week, we focused on the tyrant. Uh, We focused on Nebuchadnezzar. And last week, we said this. We said, grace topples tyrants. That there's a way in which the grace of God uh, in this story um, uh, uh, subverts the tyrant, subverts Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end there's this beginning, I don't think it's the end, but it's the beginning of a transformation that happens in this, in this tyrant Nebuchadnezzar, and it's all because of the grace of God um, working in the lives of these three men. Now today, however, we're going to shift the camera angle, we're going to look at this story again, and we're going to focus on the three Jewish men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in particular, here's the question that comes up for me. Where did these guys get their courage? Because they've got a lot of it, right? I mean, these guys, they face down um, the greatest strongman of their day, and it appears that they hardly flinch. I, I can't, I, they must have flinched, but it, it doesn't look like they flinched that much. And that's just a remarkable thing. And I want to know where they got that courage. But it's even more remarkable when you consider this. The courage, I'm going to say something that's going to sound weird. Their courage that you see in this reading is a courage that changes the world. Now that, that, I can imagine somebody rolling their eyes and going, oh, preacher's hyperbole. Here we go. But it's true. Uh, let me give you some illustrations. Like, just, just, just a few examples. For way over 2,000 years, um, this story, and others like it, this story has been inspiring movement after movement who resist tyrants and injustice and all kinds of evil, uh, and particularly through nonviolent means. People who do not have political power themselves, but nevertheless stand courageously against uh, tyrants and injustice and all sorts of things. Just think about the Jewish community. I mean, there's just innumerable illustrations through their past of how the Jewish community has maintained integrity in the face of hostile regimes, and they've rarely had political power. And this story is one of the stories that feed into that courage they've they've demonstrated. Or in our own nation, you might think about the African-American church. Again, you've got generation after generation who have stood through a profound difficulty, maintaining their integrity, keeping their loyalty in God, even when that was profoundly challenged by the suffering they endured. 
And this story is part of the origins of where they got that courage. It's not the only place, but it's part of it. Changes the world. Uh, or in our own Anglican tradition, um, uh, I, I don't know whether you've ever heard of uh, two gentlemen called Nicholas uh, Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Maybe you've never heard of them, but 500 years ago, a little bit less, they were bishops during the Reformation. And there came a point in which the, the Queen of England uh, demanded that they recant their faith. And they said no. And so because of that, they were, they were both together burnt alive on the streets of Oxford. And as the uh, kindling was ignited, uh, Latimer turned to his friend Nicholas Ridley and he said this. He said, courage, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day uh, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be extinguished. And they died. And he's right. Because almost 500 years later, we're direct spiritual descendants of those two men and the faith that they confessed. Their courage in that moment contributed to the changing of the world. But there's more than that. Um, this courage, it's not just that it changes the world in these big dramatic ways. This same courage is also the courage that every one of us is going to have to exhibit in order to live lives of integrity in the midst of the challenges that we face in our lives. The only way you're going to live a life of integrity within your family or in work or in, um, in serving the neighborhoods that you live in and our city, the only way that's going to happen is if we gain the kind of courage that these three men display. So the question is, where do we get this courage from? And here's what I want to show you. Uh, last week, we saw that grace can topple tyrants. But this week, I want to show you that grace animates courage. Go to the reading. Um, remember the scene. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he's just conquered all the nations around him. And so he's the biggest strong man of his day, and, and he knows it. He's real clear on that. Uh, but he wants to make sure everybody else knows it. So he makes this statue. It was probably a statue of himself. And he requires that everyone, especially everyone in leadership within the empire, bows down and worships this image, this statue. And, and the point is that it's a kind of a psychological imperialism. Uh, he's defeated everybody militarily. Uh, but toxic leaders are not typically satisfied until they control the uh, foundational allegiance and loyalty of those whom they try to dominate. And so for Nebuchadnezzar, by, um, by requiring that everybody worship his statue, he's demanding that everybody surrender the deepest loyalty, their deepest allegiance. They, he wants them to surrender that to himself. And because of that, it causes just a massive crisis of conscience uh, for the Jewish community, and in particular for these three men, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were officials in Nebuchadnezzar's civil service. And, and it's important to know that they were good civil servants. They were loyal to the king. Uh, they're, they're not revolutionaries. However, their loyalty had limits. And their allegiance 
was conditional. And that's because they belonged to the God of Israel. In the text it says, this God whom we serve. And the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, um, has always disallowed idolatry, which means, so you've heard of the Ten Commandments, the second commandment within the list of ten says, you shall not bow down to idols. Now, that's not just an arbitrary rule. Um, what it meant is this, a God wanted his people, those who would come into a relationship with him, he wanted uh, his people to reserve their deepest allegiance, their deepest loyalty. He wanted them to reserve that for him alone. It's a, a little bit like marriage, right? Like um, married people must not commit adultery because their loyalty is, to, is meant to be to each other. And in something of a similar way, only actually quite more profoundly and deeply, uh, God's people are not to commit idolatry. And that's true even if the state demands it. And it's true in particular if the state demands it. And sometimes it does. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they, they quietly abstain. They just abstain. Um, but very quickly, they are loudly called out. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he just loses it. Because nothing's more threatening to him than finding somebody who's uh, reserving a portion of their allegiance for someone else. And so he's profoundly jealous. And he says, surrender your deepest allegiance to me or face the fiery furnace. And this is when the courage comes in. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They've got nerve. But slow down and, and, and just consider this. Um, we've read the end of the story. And the end of the story has this remarkable resolution, this miraculous intervention where the fire doesn't burn them and things like that. But they don't know that's coming. And that's important. And here's why. Emmanuel, their loyalty to God was bigger than their commitment to self-preservation. They stand up to the king knowing that it will likely cost them their lives. Look back at verse 17. They say this, um, basically, God can save us, God will save us, and even if he doesn't, he still has our loyalty. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? They prefer the furnace over and against jettisoning God. It's remarkable, even if he doesn't save them. In fact, there's another way to translate verse 17, and, and it would be something like this. It could be translated, if God can save us, he will. If he won't, if not, he, basically he still has our loyalty. The point is this. They're trusting in their God even if no miracle arrives. And this is extremely important for us, Emmanuel. Here's why. There comes a point in the Christian life 
when um, we must learn to love God, not just for the immediate good stuff we get from him. We have to learn to love God, not just for the immediate, whatever it is, security, peace, uh, peace of mind, community, health, whatever it is, God gives us so many good gifts, but we have to learn to love God for who he is in himself and not just for the short-term benefits we get from hanging out in the religious community. And a, big, a different way to say it is this, love for God has to become bigger than our immediate self-interest. And when God, when love for God becomes stronger than even our commitment to our own self-preservation, that's when Christian courage really begins to shine. And that brings us back to the question, how in the world can such a courage emerge? How in the, and is that good? Is it good? Well, go back to the story. Because we get a clue about the source of their courage from a really odd place. I want you to think about the furnace for a few minutes. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar looks at the furnace, the furnace is a sign of his power. Um, the furnace was an indicator that he held all the cards. It was a sign um, that it, it was an indicator that he could reign with terror. But it seems that it meant something different for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they looked at the furnace, there's good reason to think that they were reminded of the power, not of Nebuchadnezzar, but of their God and of the goodness of their God. What am I talking about? Let me explain. Back up. Um, remember that the most defining story in the history of Israel is the story of the Exodus. Remember, uh, uh, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. God introduced himself to Israel by intervening in their lives, meeting them in their peril, rescuing them by his power, and liberating them from Egypt. And it was an act of grace. Last week, we said that one way to think about grace is just that. Grace is when God meets us in our peril and rescues us by his power, not our power. And that's what God did in the Exodus. And afterwards, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, in chapter 4, it describes God's intervention and exodus by saying, like, by saying this, God brought Israel out of, quote, the iron furnace. The deliverance from Egypt was in the imagination of Israel, a deliverance from a fiery furnace. And later on, the prophet Jeremiah says the exact same thing. He describes the rescue of Israel from Egypt, and he says it was a rescue from, again, quote, an iron furnace. Why is that important? Well, when Nebuchadnezzar looked at the furnace, he saw his cherished weapon of cruelty. But when the Jewish men looked at the furnace, they thought of God's historic gracious rescue. They saw something of the power and the goodness of God. But there's more, because almost certainly it also reminded them of the goodness of God's commands. Remember the second commandment. The second commandment is don't worship idols. Don't give your deepest allegiance to something that's not God. Well, these three Jewish men, they knew 
that in Israel's recent past, Israel had broken that commandment a thousand times. In the years just before this, Israel had worshipped other gods, other idols, loads of times. They'd worshipped in particular the idols of the nations around them. And they typically did that um, when worshipping those other idols looked like it would pragmatically get them ahead. Um, it, it was a little bit like this. Uh, Israel thought, I will worship the gods of Babylon, for instance, because if I worship the gods of Babylon, maybe I'll get some of Babylon's power. Maybe it'll work for me like it appears to be working for Babylon, something like that. It was always, I'll worship something other than God so it can pragmatically get me ahead one way or the other. But these men had just experienced the disaster, the catastrophic disaster of that line of thinking. They knew the recent past of their nation, and they knew that that path of worshiping other gods, of, of a, of a um, diversified portfolio of worship, so to speak, that that path had ruined their nation and had led them out. They had lost their nation and had led them into captivity and was the reason why they were standing in Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar at that very moment. And they realized that idolatry had led them into the fiery furnace, so to speak. In fact, Isaiah 48, when it talks about Israel walking into, the, into exile, it says, God's leading you into the furnace of affliction. So, when these men looked at the furnace, they saw something of a reminder of God's power and God's goodness and God's grace and rescue in, in the Exodus. But they also could see that where their disobedience had led them. Nebuchadnezzar presented uh, worshiping him as a way of escape. But these men knew that worshiping idols is a false route to escape. And they realized that following God's commands is a pathway of freedom. And they remembered that the temptation to disobey God is always attractive because it seems to be pragmatic, but it's always lying. But then there's one more thing about the furnace. The furnace reminded them of God's grace and power in the past, his rescue. It also reminded them of the goodness of God's commands and the danger of idolatry. But finally and thirdly, it also reminded them of God's promised future. In Isaiah chapter 43, we already read this earlier to this morning. Isaiah 43 speaks to Israel as they go into exile. And God speaks a beautiful promise. Just listen. When you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, it shall, you shall not be burned. Fire. Note that. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, do you catch the fire reference there? As Israel is going into exile, God gave them this promise. And it's a promise that God's not going to abandon them. Israel had cheated on God, but it's as if God says, I'm not giving up on you. It's as if God says to Israel, Israel, your sin is leading you into the furnace of affliction. It's as if God says, and that's what idolatry always does. It always leads you there. And that's why I warned you beforehand, it's as if God says to Israel, I warned you beforehand, don't give your allegiance to anyone else but me. 
but you did. It's as if God says, but even now I still love you. It's as if God says to Israel as they're going into exile, and I still love you with the same love that led me to rescue you in the Exodus. I still love you, Israel. And Israel, I'm going to meet you in your peril, and I'm going to rescue you by my power and not yours, and you're going to rediscover grace in the exile, Israel. And I'm going to chase you down, and I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you in the furnace. And I'm going to transform the furnace from a cauldron of death into a crucible of grace. I'm going to meet you there. I promise. And that's a powerful promise, isn't it? Now, are you beginning to see where their courage came from? They could see God's goodness and power in his past historic rescue. They could see his goodness in the present commandments that God had given them, and they could see his goodness in his future promise. And when those things come together, when you can see the goodness of his rescue and the goodness of his commandments and the goodness of his promise, when all those things converge within your soul, it produces a trust in God that grows to a love for God, that matures to a loyalty for God, and that loyalty can withstand the challenge of temptation. And that's where, Emmanuel, that's where courage gets tested. It's in the times of temptation. Now, earlier I said that um, we need to come to a place where we love God, not just for what he gives us in the short term, but for who he is in himself. And one reason that that's really important is that when temptation comes into your life, it's always going to appeal to your short-term interests. Right? I mean, just, just to be blunt. Lust is always saying, I can give it to you now. Greed is always saying, I can show you a shortcut. Temptation always uh, appeals to our short-term interest. But at the same time, temptation typically uh, 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 latches into our fears. Um, if you don't take this path, if you don't take that shortcut, you're going to be lonely. You're going to end up pathetic. You're going to end up a failure. Take the shortcut. It always taps into our fears. And then finally, temptation is always clouding the long-term impacts of what it wants you to do right now. When you're in the midst of temptation, you always know uh, uh, what I want and why I'm entitled to it, but you're always very unclear on its impacts 10 years from now, or 50 years from now, or in the next generation. Few of us will ever need to stand against somebody like Nebuchadnezzar by ourselves. Although we should not forget how many Christians at this very moment are having to stand with great courage in the fate in the face of a threat of death. But even if we don't have to face Nebuchadnezzar's furnace literally, every one of us is going to have to walk through the furnace of temptation. And that takes the same kind of courage. Every one of us is going to be tempted to compromise loyalty to God just a little so that we can get something that we want or we can avoid something that we fear. 
And that was even Jesus's temptation. Um, our gospel reading, if you noticed, uh, was about how right after Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted. And Jesus was tempted very much like these three men. He's tempted in the way that we're tempted. Um, our catechism says this, quote, Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him an earthly kingdom without the pain of the cross. Short-term gain, clouding the long-term implications, hooking into his fear. And that's what happens to these three men. They're, they're tempted to worship Nebuchadnezzar so that they can avoid the furnace. Jesus is tempted to worship Satan so that he can avoid the cross. You and I are going to be tempted to compromise our loyalty to God so that we can avoid something we fear or so that we can get something we want and we can get it quickly. We need courage. But remember, these three men realized that Nebuchadnezzar's furnace was not what it seemed. Nebuchadnezzar meant it to be a weapon of death, but these three men could see that it was in a remarkable way the sign of God's grace. And when they entered the furnace, they found that there in the midst of the furnace that they were not alone. They found that God's grace was sufficient even for the fire of that furnace. They realized that God could be trusted even when they were walking into their greatest fear. And Jesus found the same thing. Jesus knew that the cross was not simply what it seemed. The cross, of course, was a terrible instrument of torture. And yet, despite all expectations, when Jesus uh, submitted himself to his Father's plan and went up upon the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ was transformed into the platform of God's grace and the source of God's grace that will run down throughout all ages and to this day. It was at the cross that Jesus entered the peril of his people so that he could rescue us by his power alone. And so, Emmanuel, the question that I want to ask is this. We are all going to face the furnace of temptation at some point. Where will your courage come from in that time? And just like the men, the, these three Jewish men looked at the furnace and saw something of God's grace and power and the goodness of his command and the goodness of his promise so we are to look at the cross of christ in the midst of the temptation we look at the cross of christ and there we see jesus upon the cross what was meant to be an instrument of torture becomes the source of mercy and grace and we see if jesus died and then rose again then jesus can ensure that he can deliver us from everything that frightens us the most so trust in him his power and his grace is sufficient for you in the midst of your weakness and when you look at the cross you can see the love of Jesus and if Jesus loved you enough to give, give his life for you then his commandments are also expressions of his love so when you look at the commands and you're afraid that they're not actually good for you look at the cross and see that they are expressions of his love if Jesus gave his life for you then he will express his love through the commands as well but then finally, look at the cross of Christ, and you will see there as Jesus suffers for you, proof that he will never leave you or forsake you, that as you walk through the fires of this life, even through death itself, you will find that you are not alone, but that Jesus is with you, so trust him. Trust him, and you will find in the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the fiery furnace, there you will meet the grace of Jesus, and he will be with you, and the story that you will tell of the walking through that furnace with Christ, the story that you will tell is that Christ's grace was sufficient, and his power was 
made perfect in your weakness. So take courage, Emmanuel. Take courage and expect the fiery trial. Don't act like it's something surprising, says Peter. But walk through it with your eyes set upon the cross of Christ, and he will give you a courage that will never fail you. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.